So driving in this morning, I had ESPN radio on. There's a program called Best Week Ever. And the guy opened up the program very excited. He was like, this is the perfect Sunday. He had my attention. He says, it's the Sunday of Masters. There's NBA basketball. The Celtics are playing. And then tonight, I get to watch Game of Thrones. I don't know about you, but that's not the best Sunday ever. You've been, like me, probably frustrated with the traffic this week. All the folks descending like locusts on D.C. for the Cherry Blossom Festival. There is a, like a Japanese name for that festival. It, it means in Japanese, you will not be able to get anywhere on time. <laughs> and so folks come, descend on the Cherry Blossom Festival. They're out there now. They take their blankets and all of that good stuff. And that's not the best Sunday ever. And DCPS this week is on spring break. Praise the Lord. I know all the teachers are happy and it's a deserved break. It's a very deserved break. And you might be feeling like this is the best Sunday ever because they ain't no work tomorrow. But that's not what makes it the best Sunday ever. The best Sundays are singing like we were just singing. and Fellowshipping with God's people and hearing from God's word. And what makes Sundays so necessary is something that we forget about ourselves. We're exiles. This world is not our home. And you might be here this morning, you're not yet a Christian, and you, I'm not an exile. I was born in the United States. I you know, got a little blue passport, and I'm a citizen. I, I vote and all that. No, 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 no. You're an exile too. All of humanity has been exiled since the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3, where man fell into sin and God kicked us out of his presence. We've been roaming as exiles for millennia. And if you're a Christian this morning, you, are, you ought not be at home in this world. You ought not be putting down roots in this world as if this is your permanent dwelling place. That's like hanging curtains in a cave. You're in exile too. The church is a, a pilgrim community passing through this world. And, and in point of fact, there is a sense in which over our long history, if you're an African American, you're in exile in this country. This exile experience is a universal experience. And so this book that we're talking about this morning, Ezra, we're in chapters 5 and 6, as, as the exile community returns to Jerusalem, this is not just an ancient piece of history. This is a piece of present prophecy for God's people living in exile. Now, one of the things that's true about exile is that it's a fragile existence. Let me give you an illustration. William Dixon was an African-American in Manhattan in 1837. On April 4th, 1837, somewhere near his home, Dixon was captured by a slave catcher named A.G. Ridgely. Mr. Ridgely had orders from a slave owner in 
Maryland, Baltimore, Maryland, a Dr. Allender. What gave the slave catcher authority to take this free man into captivity and to begin a legal proceeding to return him or to take him to Maryland where he would be enslaved was a piece of paper on which Dr. Allender claimed that Dixon was his property. And what gave that paper authority and power was another piece of paper like the Fugitive Slave Law of 1793, which gave individuals like that slave catcher authority to cross state lines and to go and get people and to bring them into captivity. We don't think about it much, but something as thin and insubstantial as a signature on a piece of paper could determine the entire life course of not just an individual like William Dixon, but of the entire exile community. That's the context for Ezra chapters 5 and 6. To live as an exile is to live beneath the constant threat of others determining and destroying your life. Just for a review, for those of you who are joining into this series or we've been out of it for a couple of weeks, you remember in chapter 1, verse 1, God turned the heart of Cyrus, a pagan king, to fulfill a prophecy that he gave to Jeremiah 70 years before. But having sent his people into exile because of their sin, he would in 70 years now turn Cyrus's heart to send them back into Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and to begin, to begin rebuilding his people. Cyrus sent them and they made a good start. But you remember in chapter four, the, the uh, Samaritans uh, began to disrupt the work. And not only did they disrupt the work, but they caused the work to be stopped when they appealed to Artaxerxes, the king of Persia, who had replaced now uh, Cyrus, that if this work continued, it would hurt his pocket. He wouldn't get tax money. And they would be a rebellious people. And so Artaxerxes shut the work down with a piece of paper for 20 years. And so the work has stopped, and this is the context for Ezra chapter 5. What we are meant to see in chapters 5 and 6 is that God was present and in control during their exile. And if there's a main point for this sermon, you might put it this way. When you are in exile, focus on God's hand, not man's. The key to living an exilic life is focusing on the right hand, God's hand, and not man's. And what I want to do is give you five ways of doing this from this text. Number one, listen to God's prophets. Listen to God's prophets. That's what we'll see in Ezra 5, 1 and 2, and that's what we'll spend the bulk of our time in a sermon. Number two, expect God to watch over you. Expect God to watch over you, Ezra 5, verses 3 to 5. Number three, trust that God is in control. Trust that God is in control, Ezra 5, 6 to 17. And number four, look for God to protect you and finish the work. Ezra 6, 1 to 12. And finally, rejoice in God's salvation. Ezra 6, 13 to 22. 
Look with me in Ezra 5, beginning in verses 1 and 2. The writer writes there, Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltil, and Yeshua, the son of Josedach, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that's in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. As we said before, it is about 20 years between Ezra 5 and Ezra 4. The work has stopped for that time. And without a word from the Lord, it didn't look like the, the work would ever start again. But God sent two messengers, two prophets here in verse 1, Haggai and Zechariah. Verse 1 says they prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem. In other words, they, they're preaching to the exiles that have returned from those captive lands back into their homeland. They're in their homeland, but they were still disempowered politically and socially. God sent them a prophet anyway. You can't stop God from speaking when he wants to speak. And we have a responsibility to obey God, listen, beloved, even in exile. There's no get out of obedience free card. You don't get to sort of skip the commands of God because you're a conquered people. God still requires obedience. And he sends this messenger to speak to them. And notice the difference now. In verse 1, they are sitting still doing nothing. But in verse 2, Zerubbabel and Shealtiel and all the boys get up and begin to work. And the question is, what did Haggai and Zechariah say to this exile community that moved them from fear of their political enemies to doing the work of God? I see that we're going to do a quick survey of Haggai and Zechariah. Don't panic. You find Haggai on page 791 if you're using one of those blue Bibles. And we might summarize his message in three points. The first thing Haggai said to Israel was, don't build your house and leave God's house in ruin. Don't build your house and neglect God's house. You see that in Haggai 1 verses 2 to 4 where the prophet says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say that the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruin? Jump down to verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You see what was happening? They were building fat cribs for themselves. I mean, that joint, that joint was decked out. They were paneled on house beautiful. You know, they talking about, ooh, girl, I love your curtains. Bro, I like your deck and this grill you got back here. Sweet cribs, tricked out. And the Lord confronts them and says, consider your ways. How you going to live lavish and let my work and my worship languish? If you allow me a, a moment here. This may not be appropriate. I don't know, but it just came to mind as I was thinking about this text. It reminded me of the color purple. Remember the color purple when, when Seeley confronted Mister? They were at dinner, 
And she rose up and got in his face and said, till you do right by me, everything you think going to crumble. That's that moment right here. God, God comes and said, till you do right by me in my house, everything you think you're going to do, I'm going to blow on. Your pockets going to have holes in them. Everything you set your hand to will come to nothing. This was Haggai's message. Then he goes on and he says something encouraging. Verse 13 of chapter 1, he says, God is with you. See it there? Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. Now, this is the sweetest, most important, most central, and yet most often forgotten promise in all of the Bible. That in one sense, the whole message of the Bible is God wants to live with his people, and he does. And the thing that we most constantly forget in our exile situation is that he's with us. And we live like we all alone. And we stress like we all alone. And we act like don't nobody see us. When the truth is, God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And so Haggai says, God is with you. And in the third part of his message is in chapter 2, verses 3 to 5, he says, work and don't be scared. He says, who's left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? You remember when they laid the foundation, the old school folks wept because it didn't match the old glory. He says, is it not as nothing in your eyes? Verse 4, yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you. See, his being with us is the best basis for our working, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. Work. Don't be scared. I'm with you. My spirit's with you. And when we are exiles, as we are, we can sometimes be too scared to do what God's called us to do, can't we? You can be always looking around for somebody to give you permission for what God told you a long time ago. You can get in the habit of studying your obstacles rather than studying your opportunities. See, the exile or the slave mentality can have a, a tight grip on you, can't you? you? You're out of the enslavement. You're out of Babylon back into the land, but your mind is chained to the control and the rule of another. But when the Lord comes, calls you out of fear, out of complacency, backed by his presence, to do the work that he gives his people. That's Haggai's message. Now, at the same time, God sent Haggai, he sent Zechariah. So if you turn over one page in your Bible to 793, the page, if you're using one of those pew Bibles, you, you'll be right there in the message of Zechariah. You might say the, the exiles were so stuck, God had to send them two prophets. And what was Zechariah's message? Well, it was a lot like Haggai's, but there's some things that are added. So we might summarize the book of Zechariah. It's a big book, but we're going to condense it into about four points. We might summarize it in these four points. Number one, Zechariah preached, return to the Lord. Return to the Lord. See it there in verses one to six, or verse two to six. The Lord was very angry with our fathers, your fathers. 
Therefore say to them, thus declares the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so has he dealt with us. Listen, beloved. The most fundamental need we have if we are an exile community and a defeated people like Israel is to turn back to God. The most basic, most fundamental, most essential need we have is to be sure that we have come back to God if our sins have taken us off wandering. To turn back to God, to return to him and to hear his promise that if we return to him, he will return to us. Nothing works in life until we turn from sin and disobedience and turn back to the God who made us, back to the God who owns us, back to the God who ought to be the center of our lives. Now, most exile communities want to begin their work not with repentance and returning, but with reparations and programs. We're going to come to that. But before we get there, the message of the Lord is, you come back over here. You done went way over there when you ain't got no, no business being. Get back over here where I am. Return to the Lord was Zechariah's message. Second part of his message was, you will indeed rebuild the temple. See there in chapter 1, verses 15 to 17. And I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. What's God saying there? God's saying, listen, I had my people. They were sinning. I punished them and sent them into exile. That was punishment enough. But now the unbelieving nations crushed them further. They didn't have that prerogative. These were my people. They could not treat my people the way they wanted to. I can send them into exile, but they can't. God says, now I'm angry with those nations. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts, my city shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. And in chapter 4, verses 8 and 10, he gives a message specifically to Jerusalem. Oh, excuse me, Zerubbabel. He says, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of his house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. God's message here through through Zechariah is, listen, you're going to finish the work. The mission is guaranteed. They will build the house of the Lord. Now, not every exile community can expect this from God. But the exiles and sojourners called the church can. Doesn't Zechariah 4, 8 through 10 sound a a whole lot like Matthew 16? Where Jesus says he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. This means, beloved, if as a church, our project 
is God's project, then we're bound to succeed. Here's the third thing Zechariah taught him. It's the same thing that Haggai told him. God is with you and will live with you. See, the beautiful way is expressed in chapter 2, verses 10 to 12. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst and you shall know the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. Not only will he live with Israel, but notice there in verse 11, he's prophesying revival where all the nations will stream to him. Here's the last thing that Zechariah tells him. God is sending you a savior to save you. God is sending you a Savior to Savior. Zechariah 3, 8 and 9. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. Joshua here is a type of Christ. The branch is a prophetic way of speaking of Jesus. He's the stone that the builders refused that has become the chief cornerstone. And by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, on that day on Calvary's hill, the sins of all his people were taken care of. Expunged, removed, cleansed. Everything the exiles needed to know from focusing on God's house rather than theirs, to God being with them to give them assurance, to the promise of a Savior. Notice now, everything they needed to know came to them by God's word. Through the prophets. Their opponents were still out there. Their opponents still didn't want the work to start. At the point of verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5, the, the king had, as far as he knew, still wanted the work to stop. But the word of God said, build. And the words of kings and opponents didn't matter at that point. Here's the question every exile must answer when they face opposition. Are we going to obey God or man? God speaks to us in his word. Are we going to say, yes, Lord? Or no, nah, bruh. Will we obey? Or will we rebel? If you're here and you're not yet a Christian, the same question comes to you as it relates to putting faith in the Savior that God has sent, Jesus Christ, his son. Will you say yes to him repenting of your sin and putting your faith in him as the only one who removes your sin and makes you righteous and reconciles you to God? Or will you say yes to man? Whether that's your own desire or what other people think. Will you go on living for yourself? Or will you lay it all down in repentance and faith and live for Christ? 
nothing will last in your life until you return to God and place your faith in him. And if you're here and you're already a Christian, this keeps coming to us in questions. Will you fulfill your obedience to God by doing what he's called you to do in his word? What in his word are you leaving undone? Right now, perhaps your conscience is having a conversation with you. And you're trying to quiet it so you can hear the sermon. No, don't hear the sermon, hear God. Hear your conscience, hear the spirit speaking to you, pricking you, reminding you of things that he's already told you, perhaps. Pressing you toward obedience. Will you say yes? Or will you stiffen your neck and draw back in disobedience? Will you make excuses for your disobedience? My life is hard. This is broken. I don't have this. I'm just a lowly exile. Beloved, those are the questions of unbelief very often. Those are the questions that don't believe that God is with you, that his spirit is enough, that his word is perfect. Don't trust those questions. Don't listen to those questions. Listen to God's word as he calls you to obedience. That's the first and most fundamental thing of living as an exile. We have to listen to God's prophets. Number two, and much quicker, we have to expect God to watch us. Look there in Ezra 5, verses 3 to 5. At the same time, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethar, Bozani, and their associates came to them and spoke to them thus. Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? They also asked them this. What are the names of the men who are building this building? But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius and then an answer be returned by letter concerning it. I love those three verses. The returned exiles have apparently repented at the preaching of Haggai and Zechariah. They're back at work now, doing what God said do. But how many of you know, when you start doing what God told you to do, people show up with questions. That's what happens in verses 3 and 4. The governors want to know, who told you to start building this building? What's your leader name? Reminds me of the question the Pharisees asked Jesus in Matthew 21. By what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? The opponents of God's work love to play authority games. They really do. They, they, won't, they don't want to join the work or, or make, make you better at doing it. They just want to stop you. Verse 5 tells us that what we have to remember in those times, but the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews and they did not stop them. When the Bible talks about the eyes of the Lord, it most often has to do with God seeing and knowing everything in order to evaluate it. So in Amos 9, verse 8, we read, Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground. In that sense, he has watched that sinful kingdom. He has inspected and evaluated them, found them wanting, and has promised to judge them. But when the people do what is right in the eyes of the Lord, then God approves of them, and the eyes of the Lord are turned in this pleasure toward them. 
And this delight in them. That's the meaning here. God was keeping watch on them. He was watching them approvingly. Like a young man who's finally found out that she's the one. He looks at her differently. He watches her. His eye is on her. He takes her out for a nice date, makes sure she has a a great time, takes her home at an appropriate time, and pulls up to the house. Now, he'll just pull up in the house and fist bump, say, all right, see you later. Ladies, if he do that, he ain't ain't into you. Nor, Nor does he just pull up to the house say goodnight, let you get out of the car, and he, he, he stays there in the car till you get to the door and get in the house, and he beep beeps and drives off. <laughs> I mean, if somebody should grab you at the door, he in the car with the seatbelt on, he can't help you, he can't do nothing. No, if he into you, he pulls up, he turns off the car, he says, sit right there for a moment, he gets out the car, he walks around the other side, he opens the door, he offers you a hand, he helps you out of the door, out of the car, then he walks you to the door, and then he, as a gentleman, lets you go into the house. In fact, he stands there until you close the door, and he hears the lock click. Then he gets in the car, glad, skipping, and drives off. Trying to serve some people, that's what you're looking for. And that's how God watches his children. Walks them all the way to the door. Has this intimate knowledge of them. He is observing them with with pleasure, uh, approvingly of them. That's how he demonstrates he's not just with you, but with you. That he's got you. Even as Jesus says, until the end of the age. Listen. Listen. Because we are Christians, and Christians are exiles in this world, we're sometimes going to feel we don't have a friend alive, and that we're all alone. We sometimes feel like we don't don't have what we need to do the work of God, and it can feel as if the Christian life is so hard, God must be mad at us. It can feel almost unbearable to to follow God in the hard things that he's called us to, things that are always upstream against everything else the world is doing. Anybody ever felt like that? Like, God, I know you could make this easier. Tell the truth and shame the devil. But here's the truth to hold on to when it feels like that. God's eye is on you. You are not alone. You are not forsaken. You are not without help. You are not without resources. You are not without power. You plus God is a majority in every situation. Hold on to that. The hymn writer said, well, his eyes are on the sparrow. I know he watches me. That song's a declaration of faith. I know, I'm certain, I'm confident that if he watches the sparrows, if he numbers the hairs on my head, I know he watches over me. That'll help you in many hard nights as an exile. Here's the third thing. Trust that God is in control. That's what we see in verses 6 to 17. The folks have come and they decide they're going to write a petition to the king. 
This is a copy of the letter that Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shithar Bozani and his associates, the governors who were in the province beyond the river, sent to Darius the king. They sent him a report in which was written as follows. To Darius the king, all peace. You know, these were brothers, peace. Be it known to the king that we went to the province of Judah, to the house of the great God. It is being built with huge stones and timber is laid in the walls. This work goes on diligently and prospers in their hands. Then we asked those elders and spoke to them thus, who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? We also asked them their names for your information that we might write down the names of their leaders. Tattletales. And this was their reply to us. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth. And we are rebuilding the house that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and finished. But because our fathers had angered the God of heaven, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this house and carried away the people to Babylonia. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, Cyrus the king made a decree that this house of God should be rebuilt. And the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple that was in Jerusalem and brought into the temple of Babylon, these Cyrus the king took out of the temple of Babylon and they were delivered to one whose name was Sheshbazar, whom, whom he had made governor. And he said to him, take these vessels, Go and put them in the temple that is in Jerusalem and let the house of God be rebuilt on its site. Then this Sheshbazar came and laid the foundations of the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And from that time until now, it has been in building and it is not yet finished. Therefore, if it seems good to the king, let search be made in the royal archives there in Babylon to see whether a decree was issued by Cyrus, the king, for the rebuilding of this house of God in Jerusalem, and let the king sing us his pleasure in this matter. This is when it gets dangerous. This is when things look like what popped off in chapter 4 20 years earlier. There's some differences here. When the Samaritans in chapter 4 wrote their letter to Artaxerxes, they, they twisted the story, didn't they? This is a rebellious city, and you're not going to get tax money and all that kind of stuff. These folks seem to give a more honest report. But also, there's another difference here. In chapter 4, the enemies did all the talking, describing Israel. Here now, the leaders have come out and answered them and told them just what's what. And in their answer in verses 11 to 13, those are the key verses there. In their answer, they effectively are saying, listen, God is in control. He's in control of everything. And particularly, he's in control of three things there. In verse 11, he's in control of our identity. This was their reply to us. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth. And we are rebuilding the house that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and finished. They didn't say, we are servants of Darius the king. They declare that their service is to a higher king, the God of heaven and earth. He's not just a God in Jerusalem. 
He's not a local deity. He is the God over all things. He's the ruler over all things. And so we're not so much concerned about our identity being shaped by being citizens of Persia. We are citizens of heaven. God is our God and we are his people. And because he's our God, we are rebuilding his house. Now this answer in verse 11, this identity, well, in this context, it is political and seditious. In this context, they are risking misrepresentation as if they are rebelling against the king. In marking themselves off as God's people and distinct from God's people and in answering people who think that they are not obeying the king, they are risking the charge of rebellion and sedition and treason. And beloved, if we're going to identify with the Lord, we're going to face that very same charge, being unpatriotic, uh, of, of being disloyal, of of. Of, of not serving those who are in rightful authority. But beloved, we cannot serve man and God. We can only serve one or the other. And God's true people serve God. It's where we get our identity from. We worship God, not man. Even if we have to rebuild the churches they burned down, we worship God. They are servants of the God of heaven and earth. He's no local deity. He's God of all. Now listen, to survive exile, we got to know who we are and whose we are. We, we can't be tempted to give some answer that people pleases in those moments where we know this is jeopardy. We got to be so convinced that we belong to the Lord and our whole identity is shaped by him that it doesn't matter who asking us who we are. We, we belong to Christ and it's in his name that we live and move in half our being. You try to live in an exilic world as an exile where there's so many pressures on you, so many things trying to shape you and mold you and, and tempt you to various persuasions and ways of thought. If you're not rooted in Christ and built up in him, you're going to be subject, as Ephesians 4 says, to being tossed about with every wind and doctrine and the scheming of men. We've got to know that we know that we know that we are Christ, and he's ours. He controls our identity. Number two, God controls their exile. Verse 12 again. Because our fathers had angered the God of heaven, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this house and carried away the people to Babylonia. Notice, they do not give credit to Nebuchadnezzar for their defeat. They admit it was God who punished them with exile because of their forefathers' sin. Their view... They view their exile not as the consequence of bad military strategy, but of bad spiritual character. They view their exile not as a terrible misfortune of history, but as the definite sovereign working of God to chastise his children who disobeyed him. They view their exile not merely as a matter of individual peccadilloes, faults, and sins, but as a consequence of the character of their whole people. For that reason... They were living with the lingering effects of having been sent into slavery and now returning as former exiles. But in all of it, God was in control. 
He sent them there. And number three, he's in control of their return. Verse 13. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, Cyrus the king made a decree that this house of God should be rebuilt. Not only that, Cyrus said, give them all the resources they needed to rebuild this house of God. And this all happened not because Cyrus was a particularly good fellow. It all happened because God had prophesied by Jeremiah that he would do it exactly this way. God was in control of their return, the timing of their return, and what they would do when they returned. Nothing helps you as an exile like knowing God is in control of everything and everyone. Don't forget that, beloved. Everything and everyone that's small or of consequence that affects your life as God's people is in the control of God's hand. How precious is God's sovereignty to you? Is God in control of our identity? Or are we better known by the names of other people and other organizations and other causes? It's got a control of your exile, of your return, of your work. Gladly live all of life beneath the watching eye of God and the controlling hand of God. Because even if you're in exile, you're in the safest place you could ever be. Which brings us to the fourth thing in living like an exile. Look for God's protection. Look for God's protection. That's what we see in Ezra 6 verses 1 to 12. Notice now the second half of this legal proceeding. Then Darius the king made a decree and search was made in Babylonia in the house of the archives where the documents were stored. And in Egbertana, the citadel that is in the province of Medea, a scroll was found on which was written a record. In the first year of Cyrus the king, Cyrus the king issued a decree Concerning the house of God at Jerusalem, let the house be rebuilt, the place where sacrifices were offered, and let its foundations be retained. Its height shall be 60 cubits and its breadth 60 cubits with three layers of great stones and one layer of timber. Let the cost be paid from the royal treasury. And also let the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple that is in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, be restored and brought back to the temple that is in Jerusalem, each to its place. You shall put them in the house of God. Now, therefore, Tatanai, governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar Bozani, and your associates, the governors who are in the province beyond the river, keep away. Let the work on this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site. Moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of this house of God. The cause is to be repaid to these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province from beyond the river. And whatever is needed, bulls, rams, or sheep for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, or oil, as the priests at Jerusalem require, let that be given to them day by day without fail, that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. Also, I make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, 
a beam shall be pulled out of his house, and he shall be impaled on it, and his house shall be made a dunghill. May the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who shall put out a hand to alter this or to destroy this house of God that is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, make it a decree, let it be done with all diligence. Missed your place to shout right there, man. Here's what I want to suggest to you from the king's reply. God protects his people and their work. And in this context, verses 1 to 12, he uses two interesting things to protect them. First, God protects the exiles through secular historical records. You see that? Verses 1 to 5. Basically, Cyrus left receipts. They went and searched the archives in Ecbatana in Medea, and lo and behold, they find the edict from Cyrus now at this point, a hundred years earlier when he made this decree. And there it is, the, the legal record, the historical record, the workings of a secular pagan king under the influence of God, le- letting the people free to rebuild his work. Listen, beloved, all history is God's history. God's the one making things move. God's the one making things happen. We need a distinctively Christian view of history. There's nonsense about don't be quoting history, don't be using footnotes from history, only use the Bible. Hold on. God ain't just active in the Bible. God is active in the whole world. This world is my father's world, and he leaves receipts and footprints all through it. Even the secular records of pagan kings come to the aid of God's people when he protects them. Your behind might be saved by knowing where you come from and how you got there. A little history will go a long way for your future. Notice second, God protects the exiles through the rule of law. Through the rule of law. See there verses 6 to 12. See, exiles are not anarchists. We, We don't believe in an overthrow of government just because we suffer at the hand of government. Remember, God put them in exile. That wasn't no accident. God gave Nebuchadnezzar victory. And instead of rebelling against the government, you know what God told them through the prophet Jeremiah, speaking to that first generation of exiles in Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 4 to 7? This is what he says. It gets quoted all the time in church planting, but I wonder if we have an exiles mentality when we quote it. Verses 4 to 7, Jeremiah 29, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on his behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. That's crazy. If you're in exile thinking not like God would have you think, you're like, no, all I, we need to overthrow this government. We need to run away. We need to, we need to break all the laws we can. But no, God says, you know what? Go there and carry on with your life. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth with little image bearers. Build houses, plant gardens. Pray for the welfare of your, your captive city. Because in its welfare, 
It's your welfare. He ties the future of the exiles up together with the future of the oppressors. Only gospel thinking does that. Only gospel thinking does that. They are to be so far from anarchists that they actually seek the welfare of their captors. Now, Romans 13 says all governments are ordained by God and that anyone who opposes government authority actually opposes God. So we cannot be those who reject the rule of law. However, we may biblically protest government, stand on our rights, and fight to change laws in order to create more just governments. Let me put it to you this way. Just because God ordains every government does not mean every government is righteous. Don't be confused. Nebuchadnezzar was not God's man, nor was Artaxerxes or Darius or Cyrus. They were not righteous. God would bring judgment upon them as well. And we've got this long line of witnesses rebelling against the government authorities that hold them captive. As early as Exodus chapter 3, the Egyptian midwives who get the decree from Pharaoh to kill all the children, what do they do? They disobey the decree. Or Daniel refusing to worship the king. You know what? He said, I'm going to open my window and pray in public so folks know I don't bow to no idol. I bow to the God of heaven. Or the wise men traveling to see that Savior who was born, being asked by Herod to come back and tell him where the Savior was born, but they went back home another way. Or Paul in Acts, who appealed his case all the way to Caesar, using his rights as a Roman citizen in order to create better rules, better laws for the rights of Christian people in the preaching of the gospel. Beloved, only people who've been reading the Bible from a particularly empowered and privileged position fail to see that in the Bible is a lot of resource for righteously opposing unrighteousness in government. And Christians who have been in their exile on the bottom in this country have seen that most clearly and responded most faithfully. So let me give you three applications. Think closely with me here. Number one is this, even our appeals to the law should be an act of faith in God. So clearly the leaders here gave them their history and responded to the governors who came questioning them. But the way in which they respond is not as if they depend on horses and chariots. They respond as if they depend upon the name of the Lord their God. And so their response to government and to law is itself an act of faith in God, not an act of fear of man. Number two, as I've just been saying, we must sometimes disobey government in order to obey God. We must sometimes disobey government in order to obey God. Technically, Israel was not supposed to be building the temple. Artaxerxes had shut it down. That was the last thing we'd heard until... We come to chapter 5, where God sends them prophets and say, build. So what do they do as righteous people? They obey God, not man. They build. And we ought to understand something here. God ordains government, but government does not outrank God. And governments do not always act righteously. Third observation from this text. 
it is right for government to pay reparations to the people it wrongs. It is right for government to pay reparations to the people it wrongs. Now, I'm, I'm sort of an old head. I was in college when Malefia Asante came to Ascendancy and his book Afrocentrism, Commit Afrocentricity and Knowledge, all that good stuff. My wife was the president of the Black Student Board. I was president of Society of African American Culture, and we would conspire together to spend university money to bring in all these speakers. Yosef Benyakanon, Naeem Akbar, Wade Nobles, names y'all don't know nothing about, don't even need to look up. And in that day, reparations in that sort of subculture was like common conversation. We didn't think we were ever going to get it, but if you gave like a lecture on campus and you didn't mention reparations, like, oh, that dude, he don't know nothing, he ain't got no knowledge, you know. I mean, you know, that was just part of the common parlance. So I'm bugging so many years later (laughs) to look up and see presidential candidates talking about reparations or to read conservative um, newspaper columnists like Brooks um, talking about reparations. And then I'm bugging to watch Christians losing their minds about it and calling it a threat to the gospel and the smuggling in of secular, worldly, political philosophy that that is undermining the work of the gospel. And I'm just like, once again, in the history of this church, we're reading, as Lincoln said, the same Bible and walking away with radically different visions. So look at what's said here. Note, Note two things here, at least. First... The king or the government, he's the head of the government, had the right to compel his citizens to make restoration or restitution. Notice what he said. Now he said, give them all that they need from the treasury. Right? He had that right. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. A solid Jesus, New Testament, biblical grounds. Secondly, even though this is not the king who captured them, and took their goods, which happened a hundred years before. <laughs> and this isn't even the generation that was originally captured. Notice what he does. He gives them back what had been stolen from them. And then he says, give them everything else they need to reestablish worship and their society. The word for that, beloved, is reparations. It's restoration. It's restitution. It's happening here for the people of God, and you can't draw a straight line from the people of God to every sort of people group, but it establishes an historical precedent for this conversation that's going on and people are killing themselves about. In other words, beloved, it's the Bible. Well, let me put it to you this way. How long can you hold stolen goods And stolen people until you reach the statute of limitations and don't have to give it back. Where is that in the Bible? If it's stolen, it ain't yours. And beloved, this whole country is stolen. Let's tell the whole truth about it. Let's tell the whole truth about it. And there's a whole people in here who was stolen. 
That's not to say every proposal for reparations is a good one. It is to make the argument from the Bible as people who have received grace and mercy and been restored despite our sins, who know the injustice of the world through God's eyes. We ought to be constitutionally predisposed to see injustice corrected. That shouldn't even be the argument. What we really should be spending all our time is on how to do it, not whether to do it. And that's how far from thinking like exiles much of the church is. You see, beloved, if you've never lived like an exile, chances are your, your leaning is not toward the broken, it's toward the powerful. And chances are you have not, having been one with access to power, interrogated how you've really been using it. Because God loves to do justice, and his people should too. Let me bring us to our final point. I'm sorry to keep you all so long. Point number five, verses 16 to 22. Uh, This whole scene ends with them building the temple and with them rejoicing in God's salvation. Look there at verse 13. Then according to the word sent by Darius the king, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar, Bozani, and their associates did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of God. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel. And by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. And the people of Israel, the priests, the Levites, and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. They offered at the dedication of this house of God 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, And as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. And they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their divisions for the service of the God at Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. On the 14th day of the first month, the returned exiles kept the Passover. For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were clean. So they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests and for themselves. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them so that he had aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. This section divides nicely into three little paragraphs. Verses 13 to 15 is they finished the work. They kept preaching. They put the priesthood into order. But we're meant to see here again who was in control. It was the decree of the God of Israel that set it all off. All the other decrees of pagan kings were beneath that and responsive to God's decree. And then in verses 16 to 18, they, they, they get things in order for worship. They, they cleanse the priesthood. They make sacrifices for their sins, for the sins of, of all the people. And, and now they're organized for worship of God. And then we see in verses 19 to 20, this marvelous statement in verse 19. 
on the 14th day of the first month, the returned exiles kept the Passover. Now, we read that and that can sound like so much kind of ordinary, boring Old Testament. But don't you write the dates down of very important happenings in your life? God marks the date on the 14th day of the first month. They celebrated the Passover, which they could not do in a temple where the presence of God was thought to be for a hundred years. Two or three generations of Israelites have attempted to be faithful to God while living under the control and occupation of a conquering enemy nation. But now on this day, they are gathered together again from the four winds of the earth and they are assembled together again at the temple, which had been destroyed, but now is raised up again. And they are making offerings of bulls and goats, cleansing both the priesthood and the people for the first time in a century. I miss y'all if I'm gone two weeks. Can you imagine not being able to gather with God's people freely and worship for a hundred years and they celebrate the Passover? What was that? It's celebrating God's salvation. For the Passover was that meal that God gave Israel in the Exodus. On the night before they began the Exodus, God told them to observe a certain meal of, of herbs and bread and whatnot. And he instructed them to put blood on the doorposts of their homes. Because on that night, the angel of the Lord would pass over all of Egypt. And on every house that did not have blood on the doorposts, he would strike down dead the firstborn in every home. The firstborn male child, the firstborn uh, male animal struck. And on that night, all of Israel with one voice wailed in agony as death marched through their homes, except the homes of those who put blood on the doorposts. The angel of the Lord would see that blood and would pass over, sparing them, delivering them, keeping them from death. And the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he did what we're about to do. He took bread and broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. And he took a cup of wine and blessed it and said, this is my blood shed for you for the remission of sins and for the establishment of a new covenant. He was in that moment reinterpreting the Passover meal. And when they hear celebrate this Passover, this Passover is prophesying to that day that God had promised in Zechariah where the iniquity of the land will be removed in one day. As they celebrate this temple, they, they are gathered around a temple that itself is a forecasting of another temple. And those things go together, the erection of the temple and the removal of sin. And I call the worship we read from John chapter 2, verses 18 to 20, where Jesus says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. This temple, the Jews said, took 46 years to rebuild. That was a commercial for the resurrection when the Son of God himself would be resurrected and and the temple of his body raised up again, never to be destroyed again. Even this temple would be destroyed again. And that resurrection followed his sacrifice on Calvary's hill where he shed his blood for the sins of the world. That one act of sacrifice by the Son of God 
was enough to turn away the anger of God toward the sins of all who would believe in Christ. And that's the offer of God in the gospel. You come to his son, trusting in his son as your savior and your God, crucified for you, raised from the grave to turn away God's anger toward your sin and to bring you safely back home to God. God's promise is he will cleanse you of all of your sin and unrighteousness. God's promise is he will adopt you into his family. God's promise is you will actually become a temple yourself in whom he lives by his spirit. This is the gospel. And God calls you, if you're not yet a Christian, to turn from sin, trust in Jesus, and live forever in his grace. And if you are a Christian, God calls us to never stop rejoicing in this salvation. This great salvation where our sins were nailed to the cross and we were dressed in the righteousness of Christ. All this happening in Ezra 5 and 6, it happened to Israel, but it's written down for us. The exile community that lives now in the name of God. Know that his eye is on you. Know that he protects you. Listen to his prophets. Rejoice in his salvation. And you will never be put to shame. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you and we pray.